0: I know it's a little bit early at this point in uh, the year, in the month of December, to be already thinking about how you are going to celebrate the tradition of Festivus. It's not till December 23rd that we honor that time-honored tradition, really, of the airing of grievances, which is one of those things that I think of when I think of enemies, if you're not familiar with Festivus, you'll have to go back and, and catch some old Seinfeld episodes or tune in to your friends that do actually honor and celebrate uh, this time-honored, cherished privilege of airing grievances. But that's what I think of when, when I think of enemies. To sit and reflect, to ponder those who have wronged you, those that have harmed you, those that you would not consider friends. How do you define you define An enemy? Who are your, your enemies? When you think of the term, do you immediately shift to thoughts of, of international relationships that, that other countries, other nations have with the United States? And, and those are the ones that you think of as your enemies, those that there's friction or conflict with the United States. Do you have other, other definitions of enemies? Those that maybe might not be any further than the other side of your cubicle at work? Or maybe on the other side of the, the fence on your property line. Those could be considered your, your enemies. Maybe sometimes even it's, it's those that are under the same roof as we are. But it, it bears giving some thought to, as we're considering the, the topic at hand, that the Lord is going to humble our enemies. Well, what does that mean? Who are our enemies? Scripture lays out all kinds of definitions of enemies in Old Testament and New, maybe a little bit clearer in the Old Testament because oftentimes those enemies are associated with nations that stood opposed to God's chosen people, the Israelites. So we know the enemies as God lists those nations, as he actually does earlier in this this book of Zephaniah that we're looking at this morning. But really throughout the Old Testament, none of us would question that, that Egypt, for example, Egyptians were, were the Israelites' enemies. They, they were enslaved by them. But then even when the Egyptians allowed them to, to go, then Pharaoh and his army chased after them. The Philistines, another group, another nation uh, that uh, defied God, sending their champion Goliath out against the Israelites. And of course, as we trace the rest of the history throughout the Old Testament, We think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, those who were ultimately responsible for the demise of the northern and southern kingdom, the demise of of the Israelite nation. God also lists enemies in the New Testament, though perhaps not with that same kind of clarity associated with a nation or a country. But the New Testament has many different ways of describing those that we would consider enemies. The Apostle Paul lists a a number of different ways. On his first missionary journey, he was talking to an individual named Elymas, a a sorcerer who was trying to to draw another believer out of the faith. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 10, this is how Paul responds or addresses this sorcerer. He says, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So who's an enemy according to that criteria? Anybody that, that opposes the Lord, that stands against what is right, or takes God's message, his word, and perverts or twists it. in the New Testament is considered an enemy. That's not the only place that, that Paul identifies who our enemies are. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So, anybody that would stand opposed to what is essentially the foundational message of the Christian faith, the cross, upon which our Savior was crucified to give us the assurance of sins forgiven and eternal life. Anybody who stands opposed to that cross and the message of Christ's crucifixion is considered an enemy. The New Testament continues. Uh, James writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. God. Now, now, James isn't saying that we can't be kind and considerate and let our light shine in the world, but he's simply saying if you align yourself with the direction with the ways of the world, and you want to think that you can also align yourself or ally yourself with God's will, they are diametrically opposed. You can't be a friend to the world in that regard and consider yourself to be a friend of God. To befriend the world is to be considered an enemy of God. And then as as we mentioned too. Um, And Jesus himself makes this sad reality clear to us that sometimes even the distinction between belief and unbelief is going to hit close to home, again, right under our own roof. Jesus is the one who said a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So you aren't always going to have to look out there in the world to identify enemies. So it's, it's important for us to be clear on what we mean, more importantly, what Scripture means when we talk about enemies, if we are going to take away the assurance that God, that he humbles our enemies. And that's quite an exhaustive list, lots of descriptions there, but the fact is we have failed to mention the one that is the biggest issue, the most glaring enemy, is the one that we see when we look in the mirror every morning. It's you and it's me. We are enemies of God by nature. No, we don't typically think of ourselves that way. Nobody does. You don't go around and think of yourself as the enemy to somebody else, right? When you consider enemies, enemies are other people. It's how they treat you or don't treat you. But if we're going to be accurate the way that, that we just saw Scripture describing enemies It's very clear that that application of enemy, that designation, is for us too. Scripture is very clear on that. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul writes, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's a way of saying when you are born into this world, that term flesh is simply a description of how all of us are born into this world. You're not even, and I'm not even capable of desiring a relationship with God. I'm I'm not interested in his law. I don't want to hear God tell me, live this way, do that. Here's the, the path of righteousness and holiness. If you want a relationship with me, I say thanks, but no thanks by nature. And Paul says that means that you are hostile to God. You are an enemy to God. It's also Paul who writes in Colossians, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So when we talk about this, this topic at hand, enemies, it's not so ma- much a matter of us being able to identify all of the, worlds out, the enemies out there in the world and overlooking the fact that I'm the biggest issue here. I am an enemy Of God by nature. Actually, if we're going to state it accurately, we have to change that a little bit. I was an enemy of God by nature. But it's the very good news of the gospel that assures us that what you were is no longer who you are. Though you were an enemy, that has changed. Paul writes in, in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 10, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You were enemies but then you were reconciled, which is just a, a churchy, fancy word of saying that now you've been made friends again. Your sin separated you from God. You were born into this world with a mind that, that had cared nothing for the Lord, and that made you enemies with him. And that's what you were, hostile to him, but now you've been reconciled, made friends again. That relationship has been restored. How did God bring that about? Through his son, Jesus. When we celebrate what we are about to celebrate Shortly, the the birth of Jesus, it is the very fact that that's how God took it on Himself to forever change our status, to change us from what we were enemies to who we are friends. To do that, of course, He had to do battle against the enemy. Satan himself is really the one who is behind every ounce of opposition that stands against the Lord in this world. From the the first moment of, of his demonic rebellion and all the angels that he took with him, the enemy has been doing everything he can in his power to recruit as many mercenaries and allies as he possibly can, starting with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And he is relentless. He continues to carry on that work to bring as many to his side to do battle as he possibly can. Make no mistake, he is the greatest enemy that any of us have. Even scripture doesn't mince words. In First Peter, he warns us very clearly about watching out. He says, Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he is relentless. He's not going to give up on you just because you have been made from an enemy into a friend. He wants you back on that that other side. He wants you to stand opposed to Jesus and his church. And he's doing everything he can to recruit more to fight his battle. But it's a lost cause, isn't it? Though he might succeed in gaining allies, Though he he might succeed in rounding up troops for his army, the fact is they are fighting for a lost cause because the battle has already been won. God kept his head-crushing covenant in the Garden of Eden. He kept his promise to Eve that said, I will, through your offspring, crush his head. And that's why Christmas matters because this was God delivering on that promise. And each phase of that child that was born in Bethlehem was another stage in the battle plan that God carried out from his birth to his perfect life of obedience and righteousness in our place all the way to Good Friday to the next stage of his victorious resurrection. That confirmed for us that Satan's head had been crushed. Yes, he's still on the prowl. But again, he's fighting a lost cause. The battle has already been won. Victory is already ours. So when we recognize that that battle has been won and our enemy has already been overcome, that provides a little bit of context, doesn't it, to the words that we hear from Zephaniah. And not only has God been swift and decisive in the victory that he carried out against our enemy, but notice how Zephaniah reflects the Lord feels about us, about you and me. Just ponder the last verse of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse, verse 17 of our, our text this morning. It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. In the older translation, He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord God will delight in you. And me, why on earth should a holy, righteous God find anything in us about which to delight? I know me, you know you, you know there aren't any redeeming qualities in it. We already saw what we are by nature. And yet, Zephaniah says, as he is reflecting the very words of God himself to his people, to us, he delights in you. And it's not just that, that he delights in you. Have you ever pictured or imagined the, the last part? He will rejoice over you with singing? That the Lord is, is rejoicing over you with singing. Do you picture the Lord in his car all by himself, turning up the radio, blaring it, belting out of the top of his lungs, singing, rejoicing over you of all people? And yet that's the description here. He rejoices in song over you because of what he's done for you through his own son. The victory is ours. The confidence is ours. There is no doubt. A father demonstrated his love. A, a father who is willing to give up his only son for you, for me, must really mean it when he says, I delight in you and I sing over you with rejoicing. With I, I rejoice in you with song. He means it. Everything that Jesus did for us on our behalf is the proof of it. So we understand what Zephaniah is, is saying and what he is describing for us. And not only that, we have reason to rejoice because of how God feels about us, but, but here we come to kind of the point of, of this morning. What is the assurance that Zephaniah has given in verse 15? The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy your enemy doesn't stand a chance. He has been defeated. And that isn't just the devil because if if Jesus did what he did, if he already guaranteed and demonstrated a decisive victory over the devil himself, rest assured, he will also take care of any other enemies that stand in opposition to him. Now let's stay here for a a moment and and reflect on a, a proper appreciation of that. When we have the assurance that the Lord will humble my enemies, that does not mean that we delight or take joy in what that means for our enemies. We don't delight in the reality of knowing what is going to happen to all who stand opposed to God on that last day. That doesn't fill our heart with joy. In fact, quite the opposite. We want exactly what the Lord wants. He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of, of the truth, to come to salvation. He wants all people to come to repentance willingly, not on that last day as, as Paul describes in Philippians, when every, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow down that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many through faith, but many through force. Reluctantly, finally faced with the reality that this free gift of grace was theirs and extended to them. The invitation was for them their, their whole life. And, and they refused to take God up in his goodness. But we don't delight in, in what they're going to suffer. We simply delight that God's justice will be carried out. And we need to be reminded of that because we do see headlines and we do experience it ourselves. And it does seem as if those who stand against the Lord and his church Gain victory after victory after victory and nobody does anything about it. And we sometimes question, God, where are you? Why do you allow this to happen? Aren't you the one who can flex your mighty, strong arm and demonstrate who's really in charge here? And the Lord says, don't worry, I've got this. I will humble your enemies all in good time. That's not any of of your concern." And that changes our attitude and our mindset. We don't need to mope around. Even the prophet Zephaniah used that description of not any longer allowing or needing your, your hands to hang limp, verse 16, at, at your side. We aren't depressed. We aren't discouraged. We aren't moping around as Christians because we focus too much time and energy on what's wrong with the world. God says, I'll take care of it. I will humble your enemies. You don't need to concern yourself with that. Instead, quite a different reaction, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. As, as, as Paul also said in our second reading today, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. What does that mean? That means that He will humble our enemies. It means that you don't have to worry about humbling your enemies or getting even or getting revenge. We rejoice because we know that the Lord delights in us. We rejoice because we know that justice is going to be carried out. We rejoice because that's not our responsibility to ensure that it happens. So in the meantime, where does that leave us? If if God has not called us to that responsibility of humbling our enemies because of the assurance that he'll take care of it, do you know what that actually frees us to do in regard to our enemies? Love them just as Jesus called us to. I don't have to worry about getting even with them. I can actually love and serve my neighbor. Because with the time that I have left on this earth, however long that might be, God has also enlisted me to his side, hasn't he? To see that I do everything in my power to put the most powerful weapon of war to work, to see that as many as possible on that last day would confess Jesus through faith. And not through force. So as I love my enemies with a, a, a radical love that the world is not used to seeing, even those who ridicule me, even those who do much worse to me because of my faith, and I love them, they'll know as many of the enemies in the early Christian church did that there is something different with these Christians. There is something that is otherworldly about them. Why do they love those who, who oppose them, those who persecute them? Where does that come from? It comes from the one who changed our status. The one who looked at us, came into this world, not for friends because if that were the case, he wouldn't have come for anybody, but he came for enemies to forever change our status. That is exactly what he has done. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are no longer enemies. You are friends. The Lord who assures you that he will humble your enemies all in good time says, do everything with the time that you can to love those enemies so that by God's grace, maybe through you, as you put that word to work, those enemies might also become his friends. Amen.